It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. This is a Virgin Media Originals podcast series. Hello and welcome to The Tonight Show. Neffet have not recommended the implementation of any further restrictions. Today's figures are the highest recorded figures to date. But the HSE's Paul Reid warned that there's absolutely no doubt that the cases are much higher than those published. Our review panel takes a look at the big stories of the week as well as how the government will navigate the year to come. And later, one year on from the storming of Capitol Hill, we go live to Washington DC and reflect on the legacy of one of America's darkest days. Get in touch on Twitter with your comments and questions on hashtag tonight VMTV. Joining me in studio tonight is executive editor of the Daily Mail group, Ireland, John Lee, political correspondent with the Irish Examiner, Aoife Moore, and via Skype, Jared Barry, assistant professor of virology at University College Dublin. Uh, but first tonight, I'd like to speak to data analyst for the Business Post, Rachel Lavin. You're all very welcome along to the programme tonight, but I'll start with you, Rachel. Um, and let's talk about the official numbers that are out there versus the true figures. Um, and we know that Paul Reid today said, yes, there are, there are many more cases that we haven't accounted for. Um, what's your research showing you about the number of cases that, that are actually out there every day? Well, with 20,000 confirmed cases a day, we expect it could be three to four times that at the moment. Um, typically in the pandemic, we usually did expect cases could be twice the number of the daily confirmed cases, but with the strain on the testing system at the moment, it could now be three, maybe four times. So 60,000 to 80,000 a day. Okay, and um, are there positive indications though, in terms of where this is going, the projections for the Omicron variant, from what we're seeing in other European countries, are there positive signs that it's now reaching its peak? Yes, and I think this is, a big part of the reason NEFED and government seem so optimistic when they are not bringing any restrictions and allowing kids to go back to school. That's because they believe cases could peak in the next few days. Specifically, between today and Sunday, they do think cases could peak. This is based on NEFED projections. They put out about six different scenarios um, in early December. Um, but the one that case rise clo most closely matches shows a peak in the next few days potentially the next week, we hope, of between 20 to 25,000 cases a day. After that, cases could plummet. They predict it could be, or they project it could be below 10,000 cases a day by the end of January, below 1,000 a day by the end of February, and potentially even below 100 a day by March. Optimistic projections, but the main thing is if they peak in the next week, we'll know how accurate they are. Okay, but there's also talk of this twindemic, because Delta is still around, isn't it? 
Yes, so reportedly Delta is accounting for a lot of the ICU admissions. It's a really difficult time at the moment to sift through the data and figure out. There's, I don't think there's ever been so many moving parts, um, particularly when we look at hospitalization as well, trying to figure out the hospitalization rate at the moment, accounting for incidental infection, um, Delta also playing a role in ICU, and then the true severity. So this week we need cases to peak, next week we'll be looking at when hospitalization peak, and then we'll know from this new wave, from this new Omicron stage of the pandemic, what is the real hospitalization rate what can we cope with? So this week and next are really important to us understanding uh, the limits of Omicron. And hopefully it will peak because then we will see hospitalizations peak a week or two afterward. Okay, so all this talk or hope of, of seeing a peak now, but what impact do you believe that the reopening of schools will have on those numbers? Uh, just looking at the, the, the health um, Protection Surveillance Centre report that showed about the number of outbreaks that were linked to schools before Christmas, and that was before uh, the Omicron variant took hold. Neffet insists that schools are safe because when they look and contact trace cases, they seem to think that the majority of cases happen outside of school settings, maybe in social settings for kids or in the household. Um, but this is a really contentious point. A lot of critics and independent critics say schools are a driver of infection. They have to be. And something did happen in September that would make me a little cautious when I would look at how schools will infect numbers or affect numbers. What happened last September was an effort projected that cases would peak and fall. Instead, they stayed high for September and then they kept going up in October and they would never kind of peak when NEFIT wanted it to. And what was happening in the, if you took away the age-based numbers, was that cases were falling in adults, but they were rising in kids. So initially it seemed like places plateaued and then that drove infections up in October and November. So that would have suggested at the time to me that cases were a driver of infection. Um, whether it's in schools or outside schools is a bone of contention. It is hard to tell with the data. But um, yeah, Neffet seem confident that it won't impact their projected cases. They still think they will fall in the next week or two. It's very much a, a game of wait and see, unfortunately. Okay, Rachel, thank you for that analysis um, on the figures that we're seeing. Um, I'm joined now by our panel in studio of John Lee and Aoife Moore. And Aoife, to come to you first on the issue of schools, because there's been a great divide about it. Like anecdotally, I think a lot of parents are happy to see kids go back, teachers and, and their unions maybe not feeling the same way about it all. Um, how do you think in terms of the government making the decision on it and a little bit of flip-flopping as in schools are, are safe, schools are safer, mm -hmm. they're not as safe as maybe we thought they were and mm -hmm. no, they're absolutely safe now uh, come January. How do you think this is going to play out for them? I think what the most depressing thing is that we've been here before, you know, before Christmas, I could have, we could have predicted this in terms of, we knew that the cases were going up, we knew what we saw even with last Christmas, although we weren't vaccinated then, but the cases went up and then there was huge arguments about whether children should go back to school. And then it becomes this argument where teachers are versus parents versus newspaper columnists, and that's not where we should be at all, I think. The Minister for Education has been found wanting in this. I know there was a meeting between the unions and Norma Foley the other day. It appeared that everyone who was at the meeting came away with a completely different uh, conclusion of what was said. Teach 
teachers and teachers unions are saying that they feel abandoned. It's very much, as Rachel was saying, wait and see. We're at a stage now where we're in a yellow wellow running. Schools are being told to keep the windows open at all times. Anecdotally, you hear that children don't want to go back because they're cold at school. And we're also in a situation where principals and teachers have been left to source HEPA filters. So now, not only are they teachers and they're looking after children, but they're now epidemiologists mm. in charge of filtration and the HEPA filters as well. And I really feel that this could have been predicted before. We were, before Christmas, we had a substitute teacher crisis as well that wasn't properly acknowledged. So this was all very, very predictable. And I think there has been a real lack of control from the Department of Education. Yeah, the government would have known about this, would have known that we would see these issues after Christmas again with the shortage of teachers and those mitigation measures that people keep talking about that are so necessary in our schools. They did, um, but when I spoke to, and I probably um, wandered from the professional into the personal when I was speaking to ministers early in the week asking were children going back to school, they are back in school. What they said to me across government, it was, it was amazing unison of, of um, their interpretation of what was going to happen, which was if they kept the schools out, even for a week, which was proposed by some people, you wouldn't get them back, is what they said. Now, whatever science that, that was based on, I don't know, but that's what they were saying. If you remember last year, and my brain, like a lot of people's, is atrophying a bit. I'd actually forgotten this till my wife told me today. Our, 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 our daughter was out of school till March mm -hmm. last year, and I, 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 you know, that had not factored in. We were told, if I am right, last January, that the children would not go back for a short period of time, and that extended. Yeah, older school that children. That certainly was the fear, but but those measures that you know the teachers have been calling for, like the medical grade masks, a centralised system for providing HEPA filters to schools, and all these various issues, it do, like on what could have been a good news spin, and what could have been a good thing. The schools are open, and genuinely, we feel they are safe, and teachers um, and staff feel safe in those schools, and so will the children. Um, that that could have been a good thing that could have been done? Well, they're back at school. Um, you, you know, there's been debate among scientists throughout this pandemic. We're all a bit confused as to what the right, the, the right path mm -hmm. is. Um, Mike Ryan said today in the Irish Independent that he, um, he didn't feel HEPA, HEPA filters were a good idea. That he felt that if you use HEPA filters across schools, mm. that will cause people to neglect the more basic... Um, and it all being about a suite, a suite of measures. So, you know, yeah. the schools are back and I think that's a big thing for the, for the country. Okay. And it's not just for parents and school children, it's for the economy as well. All right, OK. Uh, I just want to bring uh, Gerald Barry in here. Uh, virologist Gerald Barry, thank you for joining us tonight. Just on the issue, um, I suppose looking at antigen testing and how that has so much come to the fore now with the absence or the, the, the pressure on the PCR system that, that they've become very reliant on it. Um, in many ways, it, it, you know, the HSE has announced you can now log in the results of your antigen test and that will give them an idea of how many um, positive cases are out there. But we are lacking at the moment in that key COVID data, aren't we? Yeah, like, I mean, it, not only in schools, but across society, we're lacking massive data in terms of how many cases are in the country, uh, who's infected, who isn't infected, who's a contact, who isn't a contact. Contact tracing has broken down across uh, multiple different sectors particularly in schools, but across multiple sectors. Um, testing cannot keep up with caseload. Uh, you know, it was mentioned earlier, the number of cases we're seeing are probably 60 to 80,000 a day in reality. 
compared to what we're being reported, which is in the region of 20,000 a day. So, yeah, there's a huge problem. problem. And, and, you know, in a way, it's an accumulation of faults that has that has led to this. And, and Omicron is really just exploiting and highlighting all those problems. You know, I mean, antigen testing is just one example of, of, of some of the failings associated with it. Where, you know, two to three weeks ago, even, um, it, there was a reluctance to use antigen testing. And now suddenly... Um, it's been pushed massively, even in symptomatic people. Um, and, and that's simply because of the reality that the PCR system is not able to cope with the demand. Um, and I think we need to recognize, finally, that antigen testing is a good thing. Um, it's very effective at picking up people with high viral load. Um, it will stop chains of transmission. It will pick up asymptomatic people as well, which is important. Relying just on symptoms is not good enough to stop chains of transmission. Um, and I would be very much in favor of pushing even heavier on antigen testing. And I think, you know, we're seeing now shortages in shops. You know, the idea that our public health system is relying on, on you know, little Aldi super value and these kind of stores to supply um, medical grade equipment for diagnostic purposes, um, seems a bit crazy. You know, yeah. um, why the HSE aren't supplying the country with antigen testing is beyond me. It certainly um, what, it would. It, it would. It would in terms of in terms of getting a consistency. It would. It would solve that problem in ter when we when we see what happened with the one of the brands that came out as showing up false positives and the issues around that. Um, and I wanted to ask you about that even more because you know on the issue of antigen testing. It's just the ultimate U-turn has happened here, hasn't it? I actually went back and looked today. Um, Philip Nolan tweeted on the 8th of May that antigen tests were snake oil. And then on the 9th of May, he said that supermarket antigen tests will not keep you safe. They were sending antigen tests out to schools in the UK and mainland Britain in March. And they are now sending them out for free uh, in the north where I was for Christmas and we were all using antigen tests to be safe over Christmas. This is another thing that, you know, Dr. Mike Ryan told us, you know, don't let perfect be the enemy of good. And that is consistently what's happened to the Irish government. We were all, we all watched the Oireachtas committee when uh, Tony Hullohan said, you know, I didn't believe that antigen testing was the answer. And now we're at a stage where you can actually log your antigen test results with the HSE because the PCR testing capacity has completely buckled. And as the doctor said, we are now relying on Aldi and Lidl for medical grade equipment to help us because everything, because this is again, really bad planning from the government. And I know they'll say, oh, there's Omicron and it's a once in a lifetime pandemic. We are two years under this pandemic and we have had a variant before. They should have planned for this. Yeah, I suppose they would say, or they probably wouldn't say, uh, there's a cost implication if you're going to centrally supply antigen tests as, as they have done in the UK. But now that they are a central tenet to, um, to our response to, to COVID-19, uh, the argument is certainly there to provide them. Yeah, I would say as well, they just talk about, you know, there'll be a cost element if they're going to provide antigen testing. There will be a cost element if they have to shut down parts of the economy yeah. again because cases keep rising. Uh, just to talk about the COVID certs, the travel certs are being updated. So people should be informed by email or they should get their updated cert. Is that right? Um, there was a hint or an indication from the Taoiseach. Uh, I don't know now, is he that strong in it? But, it, but that boosters could be used to access um, indoor hospitality. Last, last I, I was informed, that's been ruled out on a domestic basis. Now, that may change. For now. For now. Now, last, as of today, that wasn't planned. Um, 
I think to go back on the, on the antigen testing, you know, Philip Nolan has, um, has said that that wasn't a well-worded um, well uh, tweet. But, 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 but you would have to say, but, he might say that, but the view, and Nefida were before, you know, the all committees on this, and they said, you know, but it was not reliable. But that is, antigen testing was ratified by the government, government um, body itself, the, the uh, working group, back in March. But... Again, when it comes to today, where we have a rush of data coming out from government on, on changes on travel certs, we may have domestic certs are, are changed or not. Schools were done on Tuesday. There wasn't a may, and, and when I say in Philip Nolan, antigen testing, it has always, always been a failure of communication mm. where people are saying different things across government and there's been a silence over government, uh, from government all over Christmas. And now we've got this rush of data coming this week. So I think a lot of the confusion on antigen testing, on new COVID certs, on everything comes from too many voices. And that has been a criticism my newspaper group has made throughout the pandemic. Mm -hmm. uh, the, the consistency and the messaging and what, you know, silence over Christmas. And then, as you say, um, so much today and, and more confusion. Um, I want to ask you, Gerald Barry, just on the issue around, um, you said to us before Christmas that you thought that Omicron was going to kick the boosters ass when it comes to how this is all going to play out over Christmas and the new year. Do you still feel that way? Or do you think that our booster rollout has been successful in stemming the number of cases we're seeing? Um, well, the booster rollout has been successful in the sense that we've got it into a lot of arms very quickly. Um, you know, so the logistics side of thing was really spectacular. Um, but there's no doubt that Omicron has infected hundreds of thousands of people. So if you're looking at the booster as a way of stopping infection, I think you'd have to say it, it, it really hasn't. You know, it, Omicron has swept through the country. Um, and OK, without the booster, could there have been more infections? Possibly. I suppose we won't know that. I think what the booster has done, no doubt, is it has boosted people's protection against severe illness. So it has protected people from ending up in hospital. Um, so definitely the booster has done a great job there. And will, you know, that protection will, will continue to increase over the next weeks and hopefully months. So from that point of view, it has done a good job. But in terms of protecting against infection, I think it, is, it, it has probably had a minimal impact um, because Omicron is highly infectious. And importantly, it can infect people that are already vaccinated or have prior immunity, you know. So, but I think the key thing about Omicron, I think I have to say, I think we've got very lucky with Omicron. I, although that sound, sounds a bit strange because we're in the midst of it at the moment. You know, it's very clear that Omicron is nowhere near as severe as, let's say, Delta that we were dealing with previously. A lot of that is because of the immunity in the population, but also intrinsically the virus this variant is not as bad as Delta. It doesn't target the lung as aggressively and doesn't put as many people in hospital. And so I think we've got a little bit lucky with Omicron. I think I would just implore the idea, like we've talked about all these different rushes that have happened in the last few days. There has to be long-term planning now. We mm. have to realize that Omicron is a shot across the bows. Yes, it may be the last variant, but it's very likely it won't be the last variant. And the next variant could be as transmissible, okay. but could target the lungs, could put more people in hospital. So there has to be finally long-term planning associated with how we're going to protect the country and how we're going to set our country up properly to protect against right. what might come next.
Okay, there we'll have to leave it. My thanks to you, Gerald Barry, and to Rachel Lavin. Uh, John Lee and Aoife Moore will be staying with me. And coming up after the break, our panel takes a look at some of the big stories of the week, plus a look ahead at the political year ahead. Stay with us. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. Welcome back. Executive Editor of the Daily Mail Group, John Lee, and political correspondent for the Irish Examiner, Aoife Moore, are still with me for the Week in Review. And first up tonight, it's game, set and match for the Australian government as they threaten to deport tennis champion Novak Djokovic after his visa was revoked at Melbourne Airport. Well, earlier I spoke to sports journalist with Tennis365.com, Kevin Palmer, for the very latest on this story. Well, I mean, Claire, this is this is a story that's been rumbling in the tennis world for, for the best part of a year now. We know Novak Djokovic is, a, if we call him an anti-vaxxer, people get upset, but someone who is against vaccines, clearly not somebody who, who believes that he, he needs to take a COVID vaccine and has been reluctant to do so in any press conference that he's been asked about this subject. He's avoided it and avoided it and avoided it. So we were waiting to see how it was going to play out. Now, when he got the exemption on, on Monday and posted a, a very smiley picture of himself flying off to Australia, I, I knew straight away that was going to cause a huge upset in, in Australia. They've, they've lived through some very tough COVID restrictions, as we have over in Ireland in the, in the last year or so and a couple of years. And, and for somebody to sort of rock up with a, an exemption saying he doesn't need to do a COVID vaccine, saying he can, he can almost navigate the rules and do what he wants to do, that was never going to go down well. So... What happened next was the, the Australian Prime Minister gets involved, the Justice Minister gets involved. We have a full-scale diplomatic and political incident where Novak turns up at the airport, is a, 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 taken a one, to one side by border control and told that he's not allowed in the country. His visa's been cancelled. He's in a, a quarantine hotel, as they're calling it. His, his mum has been on the telly saying how traumatised she is. His dad has threatened to fight in the streets to, to free Novak. So we're in a... We're in a very, very strange situation where the story that was about tennis and whether Novak was going to play in the Australian Open has gone to a whole new level and who knows where it's going to end. Yeah, there's also a lot of political point scoring at play, isn't there, Kevin? Because if you want to prove that you're going to crack down on the unvaccinated, it's the perfect example to choose. And also the fact that he'd actually been granted that medical exemption by the Victorian government, but of course it was the federal government led by the Conservatives who went in and then stopped him from entering. Absolutely. And, and it does feel like, in a way, that he was almost given special treatment to start with by being given the exemption. And now it might almost be working against him that the Australian Prime Minister felt the need to, to go on TV, step, step into the argument, so to speak. He could see 
as politicians tend to do. We've seen it over here with Boris Johnson in the UK that they kind of step into the, the Super League rail that we had last year, last year with the Premier League clubs trying to, to, to break away. And once the politician senses a sports story where he thinks he can or she thinks they can make a bit of, a mm. bit of mileage out of it, they can become a, almost become a hero of the story themselves. They, they try and cash in and Novak is, is caught up in all this. Now, you know, I've, I've had three vaccines over here in the UK. I think everyone should get a vaccine, but Novak is, is adamant that it's not mm. something he wants to do. You know, it's his right not to do that. But as Rafael Nadal said today, there are consequences if you decide not to have a vaccine. And that, that's where we're at right now. And, and he, he is living through those consequences. And, you know, I've done, I've done a piece for Tennis365 today. It's also been on, on SundayWorld.com. How, how is Novak going to actually navigate the rest of his career. Because if you look at England at the moment, he'd need to quarantine when he came to England to defend his Wimbledon title. How's he going to get into the States without a special exemption to play Masters Series events in March and for the US Open? It looks like, you know, it's almost becoming impossible for him to continue if he doesn't take a vaccine. And, and if he's this adamant, he isn't going to do it. You know, are we seeing the end of Novak Djokovic is a question that has to be asked. Yeah, and of course, he's not getting to compete uh, in that tournament that uh, he was banking on for a 21st Grand Slam win. We'll have to leave it there. Kevin Palmer, thank you for joining us with that update tonight. Thanks, Claire. And I'm still joined here by my panel of Aoife Moore and John Lee. And uh, Aoife, to you on this story, it's kind of gone beyond tennis, hasn't it? Yeah. Nice bit of scandal for us. I was going to say that I'm not overly surprised that the man who insinuated that women shouldn't be paid the same amount as men in tennis now is arrogant enough to think he can get past people's border controls. Uh, I lived in Australia for years. Uh, anyone who has been through an Australian airport knows the fear of maybe forgetting that you had an apple in your handbag. So this, I know Novak Djokovic thinks he is suffering and he has been persecuted. This is very much par for the course. Australian border force takes no prisoners and I, the other part of it is, as they were saying, there's a lot of politics going on here. There is an Australian election coming up in May and Morrison is not going to want to be found wanting on this. You know, Australia has its own issues with vaccine hesitancy and they are not going to want to be shown to be giving people an easy go just because you're one of the elites. Yeah, and uh, even if that means, you know, he can't, he can't go for that big grand slam, that's, them's the rules, that's what they're going to say. Um, back to, to the big stories here this week. Um, and this party that was at the Department of Foreign Affairs, John, um, we had Simon Coveney um, coming out saying he spoke um, to the assembled group for, for 10 minutes, um, but he didn't attend the champagne party, the photograph <laughs> of which went up on, on Twitter. Now, it's been there a long time. It's actually been out there for mm -hmm. a while, but it was just, it was uh, republished and controversy around it. Give, remind us when that photograph exactly was taken, John, and uh, what restrictions were in place then? It was the 17th of June and we were under strict lockdown. Um, a lot of our personal freedoms were inhibited. Um, Simon Coveney has come out and said that he spoke for 10 minutes at this um, um, meeting. I think that uh, singing was banned in schools and, um, and churches and other things because that kind of practice was not deemed um, wise. Um, the big anger in government with Simon Coveney is this, this is the second time around now since the summer. It also took him a week since um, freelance journalist Dara McDonough broke this story to make any precise statement of what exactly he did which is a mystery if you're handling a communications problem like this because he now allows this to run into the Daw period on the 19th of January when it arguably could have been dealt with a week ago. Um, he has, it's been said today that the Department of 
the, sorry, the Foreign Affairs Committee will consider whether to call him to the committee when the doll returns on the 19th of, of January, which means he will have a second hearing at the, at the Foreign Affairs Committee about his conduct in relation to his, his, his position as Minister for Foreign Affairs. And if we remember his outing at the last Foreign Affairs um, Committee meeting, to put it kindly, was a disaster. Yeah. It's actually his third time because he had a return to the Foreign Affairs Committee oh, yeah. after the first time Clarify because his, he has answers that didn't make anyone any the wiser. So it'll actually be now the third time that the Minister for Foreign Affairs is called to account for his behaviour. I find this very strange. Simon Coveney used to be Mr Brexit, the kind of untouchable minister, mm. and he's had some serious stumbles, stumbles that could have been prevented, you know, very silly mistakes. And again, like well, in those John In that said, circumstance... Should he not have spoken to the, the assembled group or was it more of a case that he should have come, to, come out earlier, explained what happened uh, and hoped to have dealt with it that way? If it was against the rules for a certain amount of people to meet indoors, then he shouldn't have spoken to the group because the rules are the rules no matter who you are. I don't think anybody's questioning that. In the communication side of it, it's good to see that he has learned um, from town journalists not to make things a story when stories first come out, but now he's decided that he's just not going to mention it for a week and I don't think that's done him any favours either. Uh, let's look at the strategy for, for the year ahead because we're into Michal's, Michal Martin's last year in his tenure as Taoiseach. Um, how do you think he'll want to, this to play out for him um, in terms of what he'd like to see achieved? There are so many other issues um, and crises out there apart from the pandemic and COVID. How a politician would like things to play out for him or her is that it goes on forever. Uh, no man or woman can. Micheál Martin is in an unprecedented departure in Irish politics is, is to hand over the seat of power to... Um, Leo Varadkar in December of next year. There is confidence in the, in the Micheál Martin camp that he will do that. The question that Micheál Martin and his team can't answer is what he has to offer in the next general election. The last general election was not good for uh, Fianna Fáil. To my eyes, there's been no reform of their, um, their communication strategy. We keep referring back to that, but they, they have no social media set up that I can, I, I can see. Some of the ministers are performing badly, yet he told us at our roundtable briefing for journalists before Christmas that there's no reshuffle planned. Um, he, he, will, he make, will he make it? I don't know. The, the, the dates to watch is July of next year. I hate to be um, cynical, but um, ministerial pensions kick in on the 1st of July and people will feel free, I think, to risk their jobs. Um, he will be asked... Not so much what he plans for the next six months after that, but what he plans for the next two or three years. And I cannot see a huge confidence in Fianna Fáil that Micheál Martin is the man to lead them into the next general election. He may not want to do that, but Leo Varadkar is set to take over as, as, as Taoiseach in a year's time. Yeah, and he's just waiting for that time. Uh, I was going to say waiting, you know, left stage, but not, not really. Like, he's always mm -hmm. been there front and centre, really, hasn't he, Leo Varadkar, in this regard? In yeah. terms of how Micheál Martin plays out this year for him, he's under a lot of pressure from within mm -hmm. his own party as well. Yeah, I'd say Leo Varadkar has a calendar and he just X's off every day in the countdown to become the Taoiseach again. I think Fine Gael are looking forward to it. They know that Leo Varadkar is a very popular leader, even when Fine Gael go down in the polls. Leo is very steady when it comes to his own popularity. So I think Fine Gael will be looking 
uh, towards it. I think Leo Varadkar has struggled a bit as Tanisha. I don't think his transition from Taoiseach to Tanisha has been very smooth. I think he really misses it. You know, we went through a stage in the first year where he did everything but announced Michal Martin's birthday before Michal could do it. So I think he is very much looking forward to it. I think the, the people who will benefit the most out of it will be Fine Gael. You know, they've been steady in the polls. They've seen some dips. But I think once Leo Varadkar gets back into the Taoiseach's office, they will see a bounce. And I do think what John said is true. I think July, the summer, when you know it's meant to be the 15th of December that they're supposed to switch mm -hmm. around, if there is going to be a leadership heave against Michal Martin, it's going to have to be in the summer because whoever wins or doesn't win will need time to bed in and give the country some time to get used to it. So I think it'll be summertime if, if there is to be a heat. There are plenty of challenges, as I said ahead. There's housing, there's, there's the, the climate plan, and we think of the Greens um, when we think of that. Uh, how is the coalition as a whole faring? Like, where do the Greens come into all of this now? Well, there has been surprise and happy surprise at, at how good uh, a political partner the Green Party has shown it to be. A government I covered, the Brian Cowan government in particular, and Bertie Hearns beforehand, they were seen as a bit. Um, there were there were voices who spoke out against the government a lot. That has not been the case in this instance. Uh, I think the government is cohesive enough to, even though Michal Martin again wouldn't admit it at Christmas um, when we were interviewing him, I think they'll be aiming to take on Sinn Féin as, as, uh, to have the same government re-elected. The poll figures show that that is the only real outcome that favours them. Um, what we'll see, I think, in, in, um, in 2022 is the government go on the tax somewhat on Sinn Féin policies. Sinn Féin, and the, government, the, the, popu, popu, the electorate will then be left with a decision. Do they go with Sinn Féin, expecting them and ho hoping that they will solve the intractable problems of housing and health, which we are not getting anywhere on, uh, against the government's um, uh, highlighting of their high tax, high spend policies, which are, which are self-admitted a socialist um, yeah. agenda. And at the same time, you know, Fianna Fáil have to prove that they're not Fine Gael, yeah. while being cohesive. Yeah, so when you speak um, to backbench TDs in Fianna Fáil and you speak to grassroots members of Fianna Fáil, they will tell you, and this came out a lot during the by-election, the Dublin Bay South by-election, there has been a sense of loss of identity of Fianna Fáil. They are having a hard time explaining to the public what a Fianna Gael policy is and what a Fianna Fáil policy. They're having a hard time differentiating themselves. You know, we have people like the John McGuinnesses of the world who are saying this openly and publicly. There needs to be a set identity for Fianna Fáil and they've lost that in the last couple of years through confidence and supply and now this coalition government. So I think when they run up to the next election, and I do think that this government is going to last the term, but I think in the run-up of the next election, we're going to see conflict within Fianna Fáil because there are going to be those people who say, no, no, we need to stand on our own two feet. We're the party of housing, we're the party of education. That's where we should be campaigning. But the other side of it, maybe a bit more cynical, if they want to hold on to power, maybe come back into the coalition is the way to do it. And I think some people will advocate for that as well. Okay, well, there we'll leave it. My thanks to John Lee and to Aoife Moore. Coming up after the break on the anniversary of the Capitol Hill riots, we go live to Washington DC with Donny O'Sullivan of CNN to reflect on how the event widened political divisions in today's America. It was the Democrats were behind it all. They're the ones that caused it all. Do you really believe that? Oh, I know it.
Welcome back. At this exact moment a year ago, we were all glued to our television screens as the unthinkable was happening before our eyes. Hundreds of Trump supporters rampaged through the halls of Congress, trying to overturn the results of the 2020 US election. It was a dark day in American history, but ultimately, their effort failed. President Biden spoke in the Capitol today and laid the blame for the riots squarely at the feet of his predecessor. For the first time in our history, a president had not just lost an election, he tried to prevent the peaceful transfer of power as a violent mob breached the Capitol. But they failed. They failed. And on this day of remembrance, we must make sure that such attack never, never happens again. Well, I'm joined now from Capitol Hill by CNN correspondent Donny O'Sullivan. And Donny, uh, you've spent the year, as we all know, talking to Trump supporters about what happened on that very day. Well, let's show our viewers some of what you've been hearing on this, the anniversary. January 6th attack was not the Republicans nor Trump. It was the Democrats were behind it all. They're the ones that caused it all. Do you really believe that? I know it. I think the whole reporting of it is a giant hoax. It was a total setup. To me, it was the FBI had set it up. You said the whole thing's a setup. You don't really believe that, do you? I do. I do. Because Trump won the election. They, they, they've, they've proven it over and over again. And Tony, clearly um, no shared understanding or picture around this. Many still in denial about what happened a year ago today. Yeah, Claire, that's right. I mean, it was a bunch of lies that sort of brought people here uh, to the U.S. Capitol one year ago today when they uh, believed they were told by their president and by people on Facebook and by certain parts of the U.S. right-wing media uh, that the election had been stolen, that American democracy was a joke. So it was lies that brought people here. Uh, and now there are many, many people who don't believe what actually happened here that day, despite it being uh, the most well-documented insurrection riot in history with all the social media people were posting from it. Uh, people in total denial about who was responsible. Uh, you heard in that piece there are some folks that we spoke to just a few weeks ago um, at a Trump event in Florida uh, denying that it was Trump supporters uh, who were involved that day, which, of course, is false. Yeah, so tell us about the legacy of that, that divide in the American public. Instead of, instead of the idea and what happened and the horror of it all bringing people together, um, it's very much left a difficult legacy uh, um, for the US and going into the one-year anniversary and beyond it too. Yeah, I mean, look, I, I think what is, is concerning here when you see this is that there is not that shared history, as, as you mentioned, Claire, that shared uh, understanding. Um, and, you know, people who don't learn from their history are, are doomed to repeat it. And I think we kind of heard that uh, from Pres President Joe Biden today in his speech. Um, you know, he wasn't speaking about something that was in the past. He was speaking about what is happening in this country right now as a direct and present danger, a, a threat to American democracy. And I think one thing which is going to be a very important story to watch over the next 12 months as we go into the midterm elections here in November and beyond into 2024 is that the reason why the election 
was run fairly here last year and how Trump didn't get to overturn it uh, illegally was because there was a lot of election officials who stood up to him, a lot of them uh, volunteers, uh, people who, who oversee elections here, and, and they said, no, there wasn't fraud. Um, we're now seeing that many election deniers, many election conspiracy theorists all across the country are trying to run or trying to get into those positions to oversee elections. So that is very concerning, and that is what Biden kind of hit on today. Uh, he really laid into Trump, although not mentioning Trump by name, uh, but saying that this is something that Americans need to take very, very seriously because it is not a problem that's in the past. And Donald Trump was expected to hold a news conference today. He cancelled that. That's right, yeah. Um, he, he was supposed to uh, hold a conference uh, at his uh, club in Mar-a-Lago in, in Florida. Uh, he is now holding a rally, uh, his first rally of 2022 uh, in Arizona on, on Saturday week. Um, so he's, we expect him to address a lot of that there. Why he cancelled that, uh, it didn't, I mean, it seemed as though uh, he wasn't going to get the attention, frankly, uh, that he wanted. I think, I mean, we had the president's speech here, we had so many events here happening uh, on Capitol Hill today, so he postponed it, but uh, we certainly will be, uh, can expect to hear a lot uh, more from him in the weeks and months ahead. Yeah, and obviously there in the months ahead with the presidential campaign, uh, very much in the offing, we imagine. Yeah, I mean, look, he's he's still the leader. He's still the most influential and important person uh, in the Republican Party. I think a lot of people would say if, if he did decide to uh, run again, that the Republican uh, nomination would be uh, his. But whether he runs or not, um, you know, his his shadow, his, uh, his, his influence uh, in the party really is all-encompassing. And we even see that with Republicans here on Capitol Hill, right? Maybe Republicans who... May, don't fully embrace Trump, but they know that they many of them can't come out directly and say, no, the election wasn't stolen, or no, what actually happened here a year ago was a riot by Trump supporters, was an attempt, to, was an insurrection. Uh, many, many Republicans are afraid to uh, veer too far from the Trump talking points because uh, they don't want to stoke his ire. Okay, Tony O'Sullivan, CNN correspondent, thank you for joining us um, from DC on the eve of those riots. Thank you for that. Thanks for having me. And Liam Kennedy is the director of the Clinton Institute at uh, University College Dublin, and he joins me now. And Liam, interesting what Tony had to say there, and indeed, it's that divide in how uh, events of a year ago are being remembered, particularly between Democrats and Republicans, many of whom... Uh, on the Republican side, at least, are, are sort of siding with Trump for fear that will, they will lose votes and, and not benefit come the next election. Yeah, they're, they're scared. They're terrified. Um, I mean, it's, it's, it's really interesting to look back at this one year on. You would think, as was mentioned there, that an event of that magnitude would pull America together, right? That this would somehow make Americans come together after three years of relative division. But it didn't happen. It didn't work like that. Joe Biden, in his speech today, said what, what this represented, this event of January 6th, was an attack on democracy. And he said the former president was responsible. Those would seem to be two obvious statements of fact that any rational person would agree with. 70% of Republicans don't agree with either statement. 
They do not believe that it was a riot. They don't believe it was an insurrection. And they do not believe that President Trump was responsible. 40% of Republicans who were polled two weeks ago said that they believed that violence may be the only way to restore a legitimate presidency to the United States. So when we have Biden coming out today saying rioters held a dagger to the throat mm -hmm. of America using that strong language, mm -hmm. um, really denouncing Trump, though not by name, yeah. uh, does it have an impact? Like, has he been successful at all in healing America? And that Because that, that, this was a big job. I mean, that essentially was partially what he was elected on, bringing this country together again. Absolutely core. I'm not sure another Democrat could have been elected at that point in time. There was a sense that Joe Biden, due to his experience, due to his history of working across the aisle, all of this is what America needed. He would be the, the, the president who would heal. I haven't seen much healing. I mean, you know, Biden does talk a good talk about this, but we're not really seeing it happen. So what we're actually seeing happen is that January the 6th is really becoming part of the movement of the Trump base to restore him to power. They call this the big steal. In other words, the election was stolen. And around that, that activity on the right magnified by Fox News, it has to be said, but also by social media, has lent an extraordinary sense of impulse and momentum uh, that the Republicans are scared of, to come back to your original question. They are rowing back from their original comments about uh, January 6th. There were many of the leadership who actually said at that point in time, January 7th, mm. January 8th, that Trump was responsible. Those people aren't saying that anymore. There was a move to impeach Trump, if you remember, after January 6th. Only 10 Republicans decided that it was worth impeaching him. Only seven voted to convict him. Since then, three of those are ready to leave, and the rest of them probably will be forced out very soon. Um, you know, uh, and again, when Joe Biden was speaking today and we saw it there in that clip, he said, this won't happen again. We won't ever see this happening again. How can he be so sure of that? He can't be. And in fact, I don't think anyone is. Uh, there's a lot of loose talk about America's now moving toward a civil war, which I think is very loose talk and very dangerous talk. But the reason the talk is out there is that no one can see a way to pull the two sides together. The divisions have become so deep. They're so polarized. They're so partisan. The cultural wars mean that everything's politicized. Absolutely everything. Every choice you make becomes politicized. Education is now deeply politicized and so on. How do you pull those two sides together? Joe Biden, I don't think, has an answer for that. Uh, do you think that Trump would get the Republican nomination? If he wants it. We don't know for sure. I think he does, but he may decide it's more fun to be a kingmaker in, in Florida. We'll have to wait and see. If he wants the nomination, he has it. Can he win? He can. I'm not sure he can do so legitimately. And there lies the rub. Yeah, uh, because, I mean, many would think, OK, in order for the Republicans maybe to be able to stand back, they just need to get a very strong candidate who is not Trump um, to go in there up against Joe Biden. Yep. Is, it, is it possible to get that person who can somehow, um, you know, get, get the, the votes, I suppose, that Trump managed to get and that core um, voter base that the Republicans mm -hmm. really want to hang on to? But, but not be Donald Trump. Yeah, there, there, there are, within the Republican leadership, their dream is to find that person. They want Trump to stand aside. They want uh, the two or three different people they're looking at and they think won't be as frightening to independence as Trump would be. Um, they think that Trump is soiled as a future president, it's not possible, and that it's going to lead to all kinds of controversy and possibly violence. They would like him to stand to one side. I think it's unlikely.
Yeah, so how do you think this is going to play out now in the coming months? And what is it critical, I suppose, for, for Joe Biden to do? He hasn't managed to do so yet, and that's mm. um, bring, bring the American people together, uh, as far as the polls and, and other, yeah. even from hearing um, that clip, from hearing what, what, mm -hmm. who Donia was talking to. Yeah. Um, how does he do that? I'm not sure he can reach out to the people that Donnie was talking to, it has to be said. Um, at the same time, I, I want to make the point that one can watch Donnie's interviews, which I think are terrific, because he's great at approaching people who have quite extremist views, and they're happy to talk to him, and that's wonderful. But at the same time, I think it's easy for people who don't agree with those views to find them quite risible. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's dangerous. What he's doing there is actually interviewing people who represent the views of millions of Americans. It's easy to look at January 6th and think it was several hundred extremists, but their views are shared by millions. How do you reach out to those people? Do you try? I would like to think that you do. Um, is Biden trying? I think at the minute he hasn't shown that he has a way forward in that regard. So I don't think we hit civil war, but I do think we're going to be dealing with a deeply divided United States for years to come. Okay, there we'll have to leave it. Um, Liam Kennedy, director of the Clinton Institute in UCD, thank you yeah. uh, for joining us on the programme tonight. And that is it from us. Our programme is available as a podcast on all major platforms. Our next news is on Ireland AM tomorrow morning. But from all the late team here, good night. Take care. This is a Virgin Media Originals podcast series. 